Okay, so today I'm going to talk to you about some really interesting topics. Now, first up, this is a draft version of a longer episode that I'll be working out in more detail. This episode is simply to get my thoughts on paper and to uh, make sure that I kind of just cover all my bases. But the longer, more expanded version of this will likely be a paid-for product. And I'll probably include an extra couple of things that I will forget to put into this one. Not deliberately, mind you, just accidentally. So let's talk about the broad brushstrokes of relationship design. Now I could talk about, actually I might do a whole extra episode on that, about how everybody else does it wrong and those things that informed the creation of this episode. But let me give you the outline of everything up front. So, this process begins before you meet someone. You write down a clear vision for your future, all right? The kinds of person that you wanna be in a relationship with, the kinds of things you wanna do with them, how often you wanna do those things. Now, some of these things you'll know off the top of your head. Some of these things will become more apparent when you meet that person. For example, I did not realize that I liked roller coasters until I met this amazing girl who was obsessed with roller coasters. And now I kind of like roller coasters. It's not that she's changed me, it's that I didn't realize that I knew those things, I didn't realize those things would be enjoyable for me until I actually did them. And now that I've done them, I want to do those things again, but only with the kind of person that she kind of was. Does that make sense? Like, say for example, you try rope bondage with a great partner and you don't think you're gonna like rope bondage, doing it or receiving it, turns out to be amazing. But there's a certain kind of person that just brings that out in you. It's not always the same kind of person either, but once you're aware that that's there, it's something you can tap into within yourself. So basic relationship design outline. Clear vision of your partner. Clear vision of the things you wanna to do together. Start by definitions. Definitions and then meanings and then examples or kind of worked examples. This leads into expectation mapping and tools like the things that I like list or the how to seduce me list or um, short guides like that, like the submissive operator's manual as well. Those, those sorts of things fit in here. And then contracts 2.0 kind of evolves from that. But this is a kind of, and it's not to scale, right? And by scale, I don't mean physical size, I mean time, it's not to time scale. So all of these things shouldn't happen within the first week of meeting someone. One of the biggest mistakes people make, I think, is jumping into a DS relationship first off. I strongly advise that you date someone for a minimum of four to six months as a normal person. You can both enjoy doing kink stuff in bed you can be really rough, she can be really accommodating in terms of taking your dick. By accommodating, I mean she can really take your dick. But then, four to six months in, when you kind of know whether you want to be with this person, when you have a clear idea of what you want the relationship to look like. So, the mistake people make is jumping into a DS dynamic first thing, up front, right? 
Now, the other thing that's just kind of come off the top of my head here is that if you are a nice guy, you need to fix that. It is crucially important that you design your relationship to be interdependent from the get-go, which a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that it's possible for them to do that by moving straight from dependency to interdependency. You cannot do that. It's like Pokemon evolutions. You can't go from... <laughs> You can't go from Bulbasaur to Ivysaur to Venusaur, right? You have to go through, you can't go from the first one to the third one. You have to go through the process, right? So it's very important to, first of all, make yourself independent. This taps into broader relationship design. You must fix your nice guy-ishness as a guy. I'll be doing a podcast episode on this because male dominance and especially male dominant hypnotists are particularly prone to this kind of problem because of the high combination of unusual skill sets, high empathy, and the natural pressures that society and kink place on men in particular. So I'll be doing a podcast episode on that. Look out for that. It's, it's going to be good. It's gonna be good. So today, relationship design. Expectations mapping, contracts 2.0, but you don't even talk about a contract 2.0 until four to six months in. So here's what the ideal, and this is again, freehand off the top of my head. This is what the ideal kink relationship looks like. You are a happy, independent person, right? You love yourself. You have three close friends, male or female. For men, ideally male friends. For women, ideally, ideally female friends. In addition to a broader support network, you are happy without them. There is something called the iron law of relationships that I came up with. And it's, if you can't be happy without them, then you will never be able to be happy with them. This is unassailable, incontrovertible, and absolutely true. The reasoning behind this is, if you're not happy without them, and then they come along and they make you happy, they are the thing that makes you happy. Because you can't exert direct control over them, there is always a fear that you will have unconsciously that you cannot replace them if they leave, because they are the key to all of your happiness. Right? Being a nice guy is determined by roughly two things. One, a fixation on woman or women in general as the source of all happiness in your life. And two, the, the fundamental issue in the equation of value of how they determine their own worth. So nice guys have one symbol in that equation out of place. They value everybody else more than they value themselves under every circumstance, right? Whereas nice guys should value themselves. If they, if they did this, they wouldn't be nice guys. Nice guys is not the being nice. Nice guys is a diagnosable mental illness. For a good place to begin your explorations, check out the podcast episode that I haven't published yet on this, but also the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy by Dr. Robert Greene and especially his Dating Essentials for Men book. 
I have a better version of both of those books that I have produced coming out soon. Uh, it's a huge problem. Men desperately need help. Not only are they laughed at and mocked for seeking help, but they are often attacked by the people that they go to for help on this. This is something I am resolved to fix. But I originally became aware of this problem when I noticed so many dominants in this scene, and to a greater or lesser extent, myself included, have this problem. It's a unique conjunction of social, physical, cultural, biological, and emotional factors that make male dominant hypnotists a particularly high risk category for developing this kind of behavior. So, you must exterminate, right? You must absolutely, ruthlessly remove every trace of those two things. You must see women as normal people, right? My, my father and my grandfather always said to me, she's a pretty face, but her shit's the same color as yours, right? It's a depedestalization technique. It's reminding you that no matter how beautiful she might seem, no matter how much she might seem to be the answer to all of your problems, she's just a human being. Women lie, women cheat, women steal. Women are not perfect. Men lie and cheat and steal too, but I'm not interested in fucking them, so I pay less attention to it. So, the iron law of relationships. If you aren't happy without her, you will never be able to be happy with her because you will always have some fear that she will leave and take all your happiness with you, with her. She'll, she'll leave and take all your happiness, okay? So you must become independently happy. You do this, right? And then you fix the nice guy, right? By, by basic, well, you can do the two things at the same time, but you have to do those two things before you are independent. You must be emotionally and sexually independent. This means having healthy masturbation practices. This means being able to make yourself happy, right? A woman very much wiser than myself, who I respect and admire deeply, told me once, that you are responsible for making yourself happy. And at the time, I, I interpreted it as a curse, right? She was saying, this is just the facts of life. But now I understand what she was really saying is this is hope. You are responsible for making yourself happy. You are responsible for living your life. No one else can do it for you, right? One of the core elements of nice guyishness is an abdication of the sense of personal responsibility, usually as uh, a result of trauma that they've suffered in their childhood from an abusive mother or an uncaring and cruel gynocentric modern society. And one of the trauma responses is they abdicate responsibility for their own lives. So it's necessary to give men in that situation, male dominance, or I guess female dominance, whatever, but it's really more of a male problem, uh, back the sense that they can be responsible and they should enjoy being responsible for their own lives. So you must ruthlessly exterminate the nice guy. You must destroy every element of those behavioral patterns because they will keep you from attaining independence, which is necessary to attain interdependence, which is literally a kind of relationship that is impossible to describe to you until you have experienced it.
it is so far above two people emotionally feeding off of each other as to be the difference between drawing in the mud with a stick and the Sistine Chapel. It is, there's no comparison, right? When you are with someone who chooses to be with you and that you choose to be with, not because either of you needs either partner, but because you want and desire both each other and the accomplishment of a higher goal, you are playing a game that other people don't even know exists. And they look at you and they see the effortless symmetry, the, the, the frictionless movement between the two of you, and they are envious of you. And this is to clarify, this is not two people who are both dependent, putting on a very solid mask and pretending to be independent. This is a man that genuinely does not need someone, but chooses her. And a woman who does not need someone, but chooses him. So a crucial element of this is to attain emotional and sexual independence, which means not fucking anyone you lay your eyes on. Not that that's a bad thing. It's just not what emotional and sexual independence means. Sexual independence means being able to make yourself happy. Now, side note for the women listening to this, because you make up about 70% of my audience. Uh, clitoral orgasms are not real orgasms. They are, they're roughly speaking, the equivalent to what a man feels when he comes. It's very intense. It's very localized. It's very fast. It's incredibly boring. Right? This is the best that male orgasms get, to the extent of my knowledge. You, however, have a, not just one Phillips head screwdriver, but an entire workshop of different tools. You can come in at least 12 physiologically distinct ways. Check out the podcast episode titled 12 Kinds of Orgasm, Female Orgasm. One of the problems with women when they are alone for a long period of time is they build up a clitoral dependency. Stop doing this. I will have to put more episodes together on this topic because it's just such a widespread problem. But basically, have vaginal orgasms because vaginal orgasms require two things that are essential for bonding with a partner. One, being vulnerable, being emotionally and physically vulnerable. You can have a clitoral orgasm without being vulnerable. You really will struggle to have a vaginal orgasm without some element of vulnerability. And being able to internalize and generalize physical pleasure much more strongly than just the, the localized nature of a clitoral orgasm. <clears throat> so that's not a nice guy issue, but it's a problem that women often have that prevents them from attaining sexual independence. You need to be, as a woman, able to have consistent vaginal orgasms with a partner that you trust or by yourself, at the very least. Yeah, I'd say for independence, begin with yourself. So, when you're getting into a relationship, make sure that you are independent, that you do not need them, but you want them, right? A very wise woman said to me once, I wish to be a joyful addition to the lives of those I serve. You should aspire, and the downside of that approach is, that oftentimes it leads to the idea that you should mask your actual feelings because 
people are imperfect, you have good days and bad days, and all of a sudden you're not allowed to have bad days, or they feel like they aren't allowed to have bad days. Whereas the reality is, there should be a defined process in place for how to handle when someone has a bad day. I haven't put an episode together on this yet, but there's something called the five things that you can say. I, uh, I got this concept from, oh God, who was it? PhD, Bob, Bill. I know a lot of PhDs with Bob as their first name, so it doesn't really narrow it down. But yeah, I'm sorry, I can't recall his name right now. I'll probably put it in the uh, in the notes though. But I went to his classes uh, on kink and DS, MS relationships. Got a lot of books. Bob Rubel, Dr. Bob Rubel, that's it. And uh, he has this great concept, which is basically the five things that you can say. And it's when someone is coming home from work, male or female, and they want to vent, um, there's like five things you can actually say. It's like, yes, uh-huh, that sucks, and like two others. But basically, it grunts. The idea is all you really want to do is agree with them. This is a thing that throws men off when it comes to conflict in relationships because men men use conflict as an, as an opportunity to improve themselves. They criticize something so that they can highlight the flaws in that approach and make it better, right? This fucking sucks, here's how I do it better. Maybe a thousand times, you know, they'll say something that's dumb and obviously stupid and not really unproven. But one time, the smartest monkey in the room might say, well, actually, this is how we can do it better and everyone gets gets together and they build the space shuttle, you know? Or Elon Musk gets together and says, this is how we can make, you know, the price of launching objects into low Earth orbit or high Earth orbit or geostationary orbit really affordable, you know? Getting sidetracked there. Women, on the other hand, tend to have the requirement to vent emotionally. This confuses men because men, men are used to and, and exclusively used to when someone mentions a problem, it's because they want a solution, right? So men jump in to help and to save and to protect. And women are like, no, 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 I just want to bitch about this girl for 15 minutes. So the long story short version is how you handle conflict in a relationship is you let them stress after, you let them de-stress after a workday. I used to do it by going for a walk around the block because that builds in about a 10 to 15 minute time limit on the amount of bitching that can be accomplished. The goal of venting is to reduce the expressed emotion. If they're still agitated after 15 minutes, it's because they're getting more and more amped up. Just kind of let them vent, but keep it time limited. I'll talk more about this in the podcast episode on venting and on how to handle those situations. But you must be emotionally and sexually independent, right? So timeline of a healthy relationship. You meet someone, you go on a first date that is designed, that's just the uh, garage door, don't mind the uh, vibration there. You go on a first date designed to filter out people that are fundamentally incompatible with you. The first date should be 20 minutes. You go for coffee, maybe go for a short walk. You ask them some interesting questions you agree to see each other again, right? Make a connection. Now, if you want, you can pivot straight from first date to sex. That's entirely up to you. Second date is when you do action dates. You go and do something together. Go for a walk in the park, go for a picnic, 
Go and do things that are genuinely enjoyable, right? That you want to do and that you would naturally do without that person. So in a rough sense, you're dating for the first couple of months, just like an ordinary couple, right? Now you have a clear list of expectations for yourself, for them. You might choose to communicate them to them more casually rather than sitting down and having a formalized negotiation. You might just say, you know, my expectation is dot, 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 or I want dot, dot, dot. At some point you're gonna have sex. That's when the three minute game and the training game and the HLSS cards and whatever stuff that you do in bed. But you do not want to start a DS relationship for at least four to six months of dating that person. That marks the transition point between dating and going steady. So this is an older term that was very popular in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Women and men would date multiple people and it was implied that date meant nothing serious. And then when you found someone that you're really compatible with, you would go steady. And that would be a commitment, physical, emotional. In the Caleb Jones relationship model, what that would look like is the difference between a friends with benefits relationship and an MLTR, or a multi-person long-term relationship. So, don't commit to a DS relationship up front. Now, when it comes time to designing your DS relationship, you don't want to go for a contract version 1.0, you want to go for a contract version 2.0. As you're going through these things, as you're having sex and having dates and having fun and enjoying their company and living life and going outside and having sex outside, which is fun too, you might be making notes as you go along on the things that you enjoy, the things that they seem to really respond to. You might even decide to fill out the submissive operator's manual as you're going along as a template that you can use, but you very formally, very clearly agree to no DS relationship until after the four month mark. Now you can still do all of the things that you would do in a DS relationship. You can tie her up, you can tell her to come, you can tell her not to come, right? You can do mini contracts, play around for a weekend, right? I'm pretty confident I've talked about this in detail elsewhere, but just in case I haven't, a mini contract is when you agree to have a very, very intense scene with a defined start and end point for a short period of time, basically less than three hours. So for three hours, she's your mistress, you are her object. For three hours, he is your god and you are his eager cock slave. You know, three hours or less. And there's a defined end point and a transition. For this, you'd need to look at the PDF handout in the resources folder on how to have a scene. And I'll do a podcast episode on that sometime in the future. So play, have fun, enjoy life. Jesus Christ, you guys are young and happy and free. And even if you aren't young, enjoy each other's company. Life is more precious than you can possibly imagine. So live. Enjoy yourself and keep an eye on the future. One of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life is the expression, live today as though it were your last day. It is one of the most incoherent, deliberate mistranslations of the original wisdom. The original expression was, 
live every day as though it were a complete life. Now, anyone with two brain cells can instantly see how this is a vastly superior option. Live every day as though it were a complete life. So you wake up in the morning, you're born. In the morning, you make friends. At lunchtime, you grow and develop as a person. In the afternoon, you're an old man. In the evening, the twilight of your life, right? And imagine every day, live every day as though it were a complete life. So, play, laugh, have fun, have some scenes, have an amazing time. <coughs> Enjoy yourself, all right? Then, after four to six months, sit down. This is the process you're gonna follow. First of all, you're gonna have a lot of fun, right? This is not boring. It's not supposed to be boring and serious. Now, the interesting thing here is, my dad flipped houses, right? as one of his side businesses. And he always said to me something which really confused me because I was about four years old at the time. Uh, and I didn't understand the concept of temporal precedence very well then. He said, you make your money when you buy the house. I didn't understand this because I was, you know, he was spending a lot of money on a house, but how was he making it? The, what he was trying to say is, you make your money by making the correct decision in what to invest in, right? Now, the, one of the fundamental rules of a relationship is that you shouldn't get into a relationship expecting the other person to change. And if you are getting into a serious relationship, you need to put in something about how they aren't going to change in a way that would ruin the relationship for you. So this is where you talk about the contract 2.0 part. There's a huge podcast on this. The notes are much easier to understand because it's just nice and simple. So go there, listen to that. That's your contract 2.0. But it's very useful to also put in the idea that they can't put on, and I can already hear the screeching of feminists worldwide, hallelujah. They can't put on too much weight, right? You should have in your arrangement somewhere that if you as a man put on 70 kilos, that's a problem she didn't get into a relationship with a version of you that looks like that or that acts like that. This is not an excuse to ditch someone in a heartbeat if they put on five pounds. All you Americans and your quaint units. But it is a clear expectation that one of the things that a woman brings to a relationship that is of value is her physicality, right? As a man, strive ever upwards to improve yourself, your looks, your health, the things you eat, the way you take care of yourself. Always try to improve yourself. Make your needs a priority, not the only priority. The same way that you should be encouraging your female partner to do the same thing, right? Now, I don't know a lot of women that would be fine, genuinely fine. A lot of things would say that they would be fine, but putting on a huge amount of weight as a man it changes your lifestyle, changes your testosterone levels. It changes your personality, right? It changes your reality. Your body is the thing in which you experience the world. Honor yourself by taking proper care of it, right? Encourage your partner to honor hers. Now, the difficulty here is once people are in a relationship, a lot of women relax, 
they get very comfortable very fast and they feel like they've checked out of the game and they start stacking on the kilos. Now, in fairness, a lot of guys do the same thing too. As a man, I think that's a terrible idea, right? It's not that you have to stay as highly strung as an Olympic athlete or a professional concert violinist or a harp player. It's that you should still be making your needs a priority because you're an independent person. You, the goal wasn't to get into a relationship for the sake of being in a relationship so that both of you could get fat and eat nachos and never do anything again. The goal of getting into a relationship is to experience your amazing life alongside someone else who is also amazing, right? The mistake a lot of guys with nice guy syndrome make is they think that when you get into a relationship with someone that it will fix all their problems. Now, they believe this because they've been lied to their whole lives. This is a very Jesus on the hill, forgive them father for they know not what they do sort of moment, right? The thing about a relationship is it magnifies everything that's already there, right? So if you're unhappy, getting into a relationship will not magnify that, it won't change it into happiness. It will just expand the range of unhappiness that is possible, right? I have never been more unhappy in certain moments of my life than when I was in a relationship. When I'm alone, when I'm single, by choice, those emotions kind of balance out, right? But in my past, I've been in lots of relationships that I didn't recognize were codependent ones or dependent ones. And it magnified that emotional instability that I had. So the unhappiness became depression or the unhappiness became prolonged sadness or the unhappiness became a real problem for me, right? Being in a relationship is one of the fundamental laws of being in a relationship. Being in a relationship magnifies what is already within you, right? So this is the importance of being independent before you commit to the kind of relationship that is going to alter your personality and who you are. Because when you're in a DS relationship, you are training each other. You know, it's if, you, if you're doing operant conditioning properly, following the daily drills, the playing the training game regularly, using a clicker or some sort of marker signal, adding in hypnosis if you want to, you are training each other. The same with hypnosis, right? This is why the episode on basic submissive training is so important because one of the things I think I'm, I'm confident that I talk about is that you're training her and she's training you, right? You notice the responses you get and you as the trainer are also shaped by the person that you're training, right? So this is why it's so important to have fixed your nice guy issues, to be fully emotionally and sexually independent, right? To be able to sustain your own life. It doesn't have to be in luxury, but you have to be able to pay your bills to the point where you don't need someone to take care of you, where you're able to make informed, relatively emotionally sound choices about your future, where you don't have to say, uh, I need his money, so I'm stuck with him. Or I need her money, so I'm stuck with her. You know, Because that means that you're not fully independent. And it's okay to go from dependent. So some explanation of the dependent, independent, interdependent model. This comes from Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. 
when everyone is born, you're dependent on other people. You're a child, you're helpless, right? You need them protection. You need them to provide you with food and shelter. The goal of everyone who is dependent is to become into, uh, is to become independent, right? When you are independent, you can feed yourself, clothe yourself, get to work, you know, um, take care of yourself physically. You can live independently. That's the goal of someone with dependence. This will take you approximately 10 years, right? It's very difficult to become independent earlier than say the age of 14 or 15, right? Because you'll still be living with your parents. Given the way the economy is trending and the housing market as well, it may be difficult for you to move out. So it's important to understand that independence has multiple variances. There are different kinds of independence. So you can be physically dependent on someone, but emotionally independent of them. So physical, emotional, sexual, different, uh, different variations on types of dependence, types of independence. So your goal here is to become specifically emotionally and sexually independent because those are the things that are affected most by a relationship. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. So you move from dependence to independence where you can feed, clothe, masturbate yourself to a healthy orgasm and be happy without a partner. Be truly, honestly, genuinely happy without a partner because then it becomes a choice. Then what you do is you find the partner, you filter them out, you date them for at least four to six months, then you start to talk about expectations. So the most important thing to, to sort of talk about when you're talking about building a DS relationship specifically is definitions, meanings, ideal days, and then a contract 2.0, right? You also need to add in some stuff about how to handle conflicts and also there's an implicit understanding that a lot of dominance step past. This is one of the things that's sort of fixed by a contract 2.0 but it's also an element of human nature that can't ever really be resolved. It's that other people can do things because you want them to do them. No problem at all with that. I've worked in plenty of jobs where someone has said, sweep the floor, and I've said, I don't really want to, but I will, right? Side note, I actually love sweeping the floor, so not a great example, but there's just something wholesome about bringing order to chaos, you know? And you'll still do it. You won't want to do it, but you will. A lot of dominance want their partner to want to do the thing. A contract cannot be bludgeoned across someone's face hard enough that it will make them want to do it. That is different. Some people, there's a particularly skilled American dominant who I respect very much. There are several, of course, but there's one in particular that I'm thinking of now. And he doesn't really care whether they want to do it or not. He genuinely doesn't give a shit. They'll either do it or they won't. And he has a way of handling either way, right? Whatever, whatever are those two options that happens. Some other people really want their dominance, really want their submissives to want to do the thing. It's very important to them that they want to do it, that they are enjoying it. This is the thing that, that led me to develop the validation versus the act episode. 
which is an absolutely critical distinction for anyone in any kind of relationship. Do you want them to do the thing or do you want them to want to do the thing? Huge difference, right? So let me lead you through the, brief, the rough process. First of all, you talk about definitions, right? What is a dominant? What is a submissive? What is an object? Now, I don't like using labels, but it's important to understand a common terminology. I don't identify as dominant. I have never really identified as dominant. Also, critical distinction, write this down. You want to design your DS relationship for at minimum the first six months to a year to be only in the bedroom, right? That I've seen so many people, I couldn't even begin to list them, try to jump into a relationship with someone and they themselves, the dominant, cannot manage their own life. Part of it is the nice guy that's riddled to their fucking bones and they have to cut that shit out like a cancer, right? Part of it is the social pressures on young men uh, part of it is that built-in natural protective mechanism that men have to find a woman and take care of her. This is the same impulse that motivates men to run towards active shooters or towards burning buildings or towards the sound of gunfire. This is the same protective impulse that has protected and preserved society because of its genetic basis for, for millions of years. Not the only thing that's protected and preserved society, but it's a big component. And it's what's distorted in men who have nice guy syndrome. And those definitions, they matter, right? But the distinction here that's critical is being sexually dominant being versus, dom versus dominant everywhere, right? Being dominant everywhere is massively more complicated. Now, the limiting factor here <coughs> is usually not the skill of the dominant. The limiting factor is the skill of the submissive, right? If they are willing, the difference between a slave and a submissive is this. A submissive is someone who does things because they want to, right? You and her are playing through this fantasy where you are in charge of everything and you can make her do whatever you want, but she can say no at any time with very minimal consequences. And so what this immediately presents itself as is it's very hard for those women to be dominated outside of the bedroom because they lack the ability to understand that they can disagree with something and still be wrong. That's a crucial, kill, a crucial skill. L.T. Morrison talks about this in his absolutely seminal trilogy on mastery. And it's a very core component of it, which he kind of glosses over because the guy's honestly kind of brilliant. Um, but one of the things he talks about is the difference between submissives and slaves. A submissive, when given an order they disagree with or don't understand or don't like, will say no. A slave will understand that it doesn't matter how they feel about that thing. It is still important that it gets done. It is nothing but the master's will that requires to see it done. They're able to disagree with you and do the same thing anyway because they know that it doesn't matter because what you want is more important. Now, 
not a lot of women have the the level of mental achievement, the level of emotional development, the level of safety and security in their own identity to be able to say, I disagree with you, I don't want to do this, but I will do it anyway. And to do it without feeling terrible about it, right? The limiting factor in MS relationships is not usually the skill or desire of the dominant partner for that nature of relationship. It's the, the, the limitation is almost always, in my experience and in the experience of many people that I've interviewed and surveyed, is that the submissive's reluctance or inability to accept that she can be wrong about something even if she doesn't think that she's wrong and still go along with it, right? So that's why it's important to define both a submissive and a slave. It's very important. Now, there's an excellent set of eight questions, which I think I expanded from the seven questions from Anton Fullman's absolutely excellent book, The Heart of Dominance. I highly recommend this. It is quite literally in my top five best books on kink. Brilliant book. Uh, yes, huge admirer of his professional work. I can't speak to him personally because I haven't actually contacted him or had any kind of interaction with him, but his professional work in that book is excellent. But there are seven questions. I added some things, expanded some things, and turned that into something that can be used to design a relationship because a relationship in the DS sense is one big long scene. So for the first six months of your DS relationship, only dominate in the bedroom. Don't even try to control any part of her life, right? Don't tell her. Your domain in, in the D&D clerical sense, your domain is everything sexual with this person, right? So you wanna be sexually dominant. You don't wanna be a lifestyle dominant with this person yet. Because even if you have 10 years of experience, they may not. And even if they do and you do, take the time to get warmed up. You've got the rest of your lives together, right? Show yourself the respect that you deserve by taking this seriously. Now, understand that they're going to want you to control elements of their life. They're gonna ask you to do it. There's nothing wrong with ask them asking you to pick out their clothes for the day, right? but I always make it clear that it's just a suggestion. You know, I'd say something like, well, my preference would be, not my order is, not this is the will of the Lord. This is my preference, right? Now, the thing about a preference, as we discuss in the Contracts 2.0 podcast episode, is there is no punishment for violating a preference. None. You are happy with her regardless of whether she follows it or not. Right. So anything outside of the bedroom, anything outside of the sexual domain, right? And it has to be very clearly inside the sexual domain. Like telling someone not to wear panties in public is a sexual thing. And therefore it's something that is well within your domain. Telling her not to wear any clothes in public is not a sexual thing necessarily. It's not, it's not, right? So you control the sexual domain. Get comfy there. You're gonna spend a lot of time controlling the sexual domain, right? This is to avoid a number of core problems. One of the core problems is 
that submissives and slaves, I'm going to use the term submissive, but you can imagine that I'm saying both of them and using them interchangeably, that submissives have often no idea what they actually want. And they will have to discover this through either a slow, haphazard process of living life or a slightly faster and much more effective process of lifestyle design. But seeing as the sexual element is one that is present, familiar, in most cases exclusive to you as their partner, so if you're in a monogamous relationship or if you're in a committed relationship, uh, they offer you up control over the sexual domain of their life, their orgasms. Now, this is an interesting part because you need to define the term sexual domain. What is in the sexual domain? Now, it's just like learning a foreign language. You begin with the dictionary definition of it, or at least the definition that both of you agree on, or generally the definition that you tell her that this actually means. So then there's the definition, then there's the meaning, and then there's worked examples, right? It's like using, it's like learning math, right? What is algebra? Algebra is this, it is, that's the definition. What does this mean? Well, it gives us a system that allows us to learn things about numbers and quantities and relationships that we didn't already know by using a set of rules to operate on symbols, right? And then worked examples. Well, Johnny has, has three X apples and Sally has five Y apples, rah, 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 right? So those three core elements, definitions, what does this actually mean? And then what does this look like in practice? Now, we're getting into the seriously chunky part of this. So this is a process that can take weeks of discussion, not constantly, but you know, back and forth, right? Defining the definitions. What is a slave? What is a submissive? What is a relationship? You don't have to go out of your way to do this, but the core elements should be things that you agree on perfectly. Then what does this actually mean? And then, what does this actually look like? So, let's work through some examples to give you a clearer idea. Let's, let's say, for example, that we are designing a definition of dominance. What is dominance? Well, dominance to me is very different to what dominance to you might be. Let's use an example. Dominance means benevolent control over the actions of another for the purposes of mutual gain and self-improvement, right? That's my definition. That's the definition I came up with 20 seconds ago. In half an hour, it might even be completely different, right? So write down your definitions. Nothing counts unless it's written down. Then what does this actually mean? Well, it means that I'm gonna to wanna to progress to being in control of different parts of your life at some point in the future with the goal of the two of us talking about how that's going to improve you, right? My intention is to remake you into a happier, better, healthier, stronger, and smarter version of yourself. Now, a lot of people out there will say, oh no, that's so arrogant. And even more people out there will say, that sounds like the hottest fucking thing I've ever heard. How do I sign up? My contact details are on the websites, folks. Now, 
So expectations, meanings. Meanings, what does it actually mean, all right? What does dominance mean? Well, it means that you're gonna to go to bed hungry sometimes because you wouldn't eat your dinner. Uh, it means that when we're out together, you'll be holding my hand and I'll be asserting control of you. What does it actually mean, right? And then a worked example. Now, a simple example of a worked example is an ideal day, okay? So you have a, you have a conversation about what your ideal day would look like. The best way to do this is to build up trust using that series of three exercises I outlined where you write down the things that you genuinely want without filtering or censoring. And then you say them to yourself out loud to become more comfortable with them. And then you begin to share them with a trusted partner or friend out loud. That's a way of becoming more comfortable with yourself and your sexual desires. Now, what I advise you to do is write out a page or two of your ideal day. Where do you wake up? Who do you wake up next to? Where are they sleeping? What do you guys do first? In detail. And then share that back and forth as much as you feel comfortable with in the moment. So have several conversations about this where you've got yours finished and she's got hers finished. And don't change yours or edit yours or censor yours, but share progressively more intense parts of it with her as you yourself feel comfortable sharing that with someone because it's your level of comfort that matters here and to, to a lesser extent their level of comfort too but that's going to inform how they respond is going to inform how safe you feel sharing these deep and incredibly intimate parts of your life so as an example my ideal day wake up next to a beautiful girl right roll over have sex it's, I'm just using simple play examples here. It's amazing. Both of us edge, using each other's bodies. She's grinding down on my thigh. She has my cock in her mouth. Both of us are edging together, right? To build up that energy, that frisson, right? Then we have lunch, then we have dinner, then we go and do some stuff, then we go to the theater, we see a play. Simplified example of a perfect day, right? At the theater, you know, she's not wearing any panties. So two or three times during the show, I lean over and tell her to grind her thighs together and edge her some more. Now, I might not share all of the details with someone first conversation. I might say something like, we wake up in the morning and we do sexual stuff. And then we go to lunch and then we do sexual stuff. I might not say, we go to lunch at an alfresco restaurant overlooking the bay so that we can hear the sound of the evening kind of turning over as the city comes to life. So that we can hear the lights of the city coming on and the hustle and the bustle of the night markets. I might not say it covers the sound of the vibrator clenched deep between your thighs that I've been pushing the button for for the last five minutes. Right? I might not say that, I'll say, right in public, it's nighttime, we're doing sex stuff. In some detail. Right, but not as much detail that I start to feel uncomfortable. It's a goal of progressively opening up to someone in a way that you feel comfortable with, letting them receive it and then letting them share their ideal with you. Okay, so this is how you become more comfortable. Your ideal day is an exercise that you can do to work through, you know, like what that would actually look like. Right? In our dream life, what would this actually look like? 
Then you have these conversations, you talk about your contract 2.0, you come up with your, your keystone statement, your deal breakers. Now, there's a lot of content around how to come up with a contract 2.0. All right, that's all in the podcast episode. I think it's almost two hours long and the notes cover everything in very simple, very specific detail. But with this, you want to talk about intention and your fears, right? So what's the intention of the relationship? To have lots of sex, that's fine, right? To feel safe and protected might be her answer. And it's like, whoa, okay, we're at very cross purposes here. We're going in totally different directions. It's not that your answer is wrong. It's not that her answer is wrong. It's just that your relationship will be happier and healthier when you are both happy and healthy in the relationship. Not when one of you is constantly pandering to the other to prevent them from leaving because they are the center of your emotional universe and you require them to be happy in order for you to be able to be happy, i.e. being a nice guy. So fix those problems before you go on your road trip. Fix the problems before you jump into a you know, serious, involved relationship with someone. Get your nice guy shit sorted, right? Fix your life. But especially and crucially, become emotionally and sexually independent, have a core support network of friends that you do things with, have a happy life and be happy without your partner, right? Iron law of relationships always applies. If you cannot be happy without them, then you cannot be happy with them, right? Because you'll always be terrified of them leaving. So you talk about your intentions. You write this stuff down, you write all of this stuff down, pour it out, take a notebook and just scribble it everywhere, right? Don't need to be neat, just jot all your thoughts down without censoring. I go into way more detail in the podcast episode on how to do this. Intentions, write out your fears. Talk through your fears with your partner. I'm afraid that I will love you so terrifyingly intensely that I'll be blinded to the mistakes that I might make, right? I'm afraid that I will see a future with you that I never thought possible and it will inspire me to commit to things that are impractical or weird or not right for me, right? Whatever that might be. Whatever your fears are, write those down. Kind of order them from least scary to most scary and intense and then progressively share them with your partner over time, right? It's okay for this conversation. I never liked the term negotiation because it makes it sound like two people are sitting across a table from each other trying desperately not to be the one that loses. This is not a negotiation. This is construction work. We are building something. You are building something. I am building something. Are we off the same plans? All right. The goal from all of this is intensity and connection. Both of those things flow from compatibility and both the, and compatibility flows from filtering out the people that are not compatible with you and finding the people that inspire you to want to be a better person. The best kinds of friends are the ones that inspire you to want to be a better person. Okay. So you've run through talking about your fears, You're talking about the intentions first, then your fears. I'm afraid of this. Let them reassure you. 
I'm afraid of this, come up with a mitigation strategy. I'm afraid of this, talk about it. Even just talking about it fixes off the top of my head like 70% of all of the fears you can have, right? With the rest being, being resolved quite neatly by mitigation strategies like promise me that you'll tell me if I'm ever a burden, right? That kind of thing. So now you have your contract 2.0, you have your intentions, you have your fears. Now, this is the part where you need to talk about something that I may not have covered in enough detail in the contract 2.0 episode. And that's how you handle discipline, right? So I don't really punish anymore. I talk about this a lot more in the episode, but you need to have some mechanism in place for when things go wrong, right? So what happens if she really done fucked up, right? What do you do then? Well, you know, if she broke one of the deal breakers, then we need to unfold the contract. And then we need to go into like a holding pattern and we need to figure out whether we can overcome this. All right, anything that's not a deal breaker, you can recover from by definition. A man much wiser than myself told me that. It's like anything that isn't gonna end the relationship, by definition, you can recover from, right? So the only thing that matters are the deal breakers. Because if she really fucks up, but it's not a deal breaker, then there is something, some pathway that she can do to remediate that so that the relationship can continue in its current form. Now, let's present three options here. One, she fucks up and she breaks a deal breaker. Boom. The contract is gone. You both go into a holding pattern. If you're living together, you know, don't make any sudden movements like moving out or burning all their stuff. You basically go back to casually dating, right? You talk about it. You talk to each other. You're honest, you're open, you're vulnerable. You try very, very hard because it's worth it to be honest, to be direct. Use I statements. I'll put a podcast episode together on dealing with conflict in DS relationships, right? I'll go into a lot of different strategies in much more detail, but things like use I statements. Talk about the things that you've already done to try to fix the problem. Don't put the responsibility on the other person, right? Take responsibility for your own feelings. Um, the jealousy exercises, the two elements of those that, that really matter. First question when it comes to jealousy is, did they do that with the intention of hurting me? If they didn't, it's almost impossible for you to actually be jealous from this. The second thing is, you know, have I actually lost something? Something physical, something real, like, uh, you know, trust in the relationship is meaningful. That's a, that's, a, that's a genuine answer. You can have that as an answer. But have you missed out on something? Have you lost an opportunity? Have you lost a connection? Not a potential connection, but a real connection. Have you lost something really. If you haven't lost something really, then it's very difficult to feel jealous because you haven't actually lost anything as a result of their actions. Give you a simple example. Um, there's a great friend of mine and she's currently sleeping her way through a major city and she's going on lots of dates. She's only taking about one in every 10 guy home and one in every 10th guy home. And she's having an amazing time, right? And I might be jealous of that, I'm not, but let's assume hypothetically that I am. 
I'd run it through those first two questions. Is she doing this to hurt me? No, of course not, right? Would she prefer to sleep with me if I was there? Absolutely, but that's not a question. It's those two questions, that's how you handle jealousy. Did she do this with the intention of hurting me? Absolutely not. Therefore, it's very hard for me to be jealous, right? Have I lost anything because of this? Absolutely not, with 100% certainty. So I basically can't be jealous. Not that I'm not allowed to be jealous. I mean that it's physiologically very difficult to actually be jealous if those two questions have been asked and answered correctly. So the second option is that she breaks a rule, but it's not a deal breaker, right? So this is probably gonna happen most commonly and you need to have a remediation strategy for this. You need to have some kind of plan in place. What happens then, right? Right? Well, then that person needs to come to you later on and apologize. If you're out in public together and she breaks a rule, then she needs to understand that she's likely to go home myself that night. You, you are under no obligation to provide emotional support to someone that has just deliberately hurt you, right? That would be fucking ridiculous. Um, all those whiny bitch submissives out there going, well, I didn't mean to sleep with that guy. I didn't mean to play with that guy. And it was an accident. And it's like, you knew what you were doing. And now you're expecting your primary partner to pick up the pieces of someone else's mess. That's just wildly irresponsible. Let, take out all the DS elements of that. And it still sounds wildly irresponsible, right? So I'm not saying that you absolutely have to send them home by themselves. I'm saying that in that moment, your priority as a dominant should be your own health, happiness, and self-care, right? Take care of yourself first in those situations where a rule is violated. And if you violate a rule, apologize for it, right? Do it sincerely, do it quickly, mean it. And then talk about what you can potentially both of you do some people think that it's important to come up with a remediation strategy for every single time that this happens. For example, they think that it's essential to come up with some sort of strategy so that if something bad happens one time, that it never ever happens again. And what they end up with is a contract 1.0, where you end up having a million different exceptions to and a million different remediation strategies. Right? You need to have like one or two things. Basically, I would actually group it by context, not by severity of incidents. So in public versus in private. In public, if, if she done fucked up real bad, you know, then I pull her aside, have a two minute conversation. We spend the rest of the evening by ourselves, just kind of cooling off. This is a hypothetical off the top of my head. This is not an actual remediation strategy. Come up with a better one for you, right? And then if you're alone in private and she done fucked up then, come up with a better strategy then, right? What are you gonna do to make this better? Does the person have to apologize to you? Honestly, yeah, they probably do. Now, there's an argument that goes back and forth in risk mitigation circles about whether you should wait until multiple events have happened before designing a remediation strategy. When it comes to DS relationships, I think it's the second time that's the charm. If something happens once, no big deal, right? If something happens again, that's when you step in and come up with some sort of, and again, I, I would very much hesitate 
to focus on rules or on even on preferences, the deal breakers and the uh, keystone statement of your contract 2.0, what's going to bind all of this together, right? Say you have an example. You're at a kink event and you and your woman are talking, but to different groups. She's a respected and admired submissive and she's giving advice to a young female submissive who wants to improve and your partner says something not only fucking retarded but genuinely insulting to all men everywhere that is also objectively not true. Now this would never happen but I'm using an extreme example, right? She realizes that she done fucked up within about three seconds. She then apologizes for it to the other person. But this might have violated one of the, the preferences to the rules that you had. It might even be a deal breaker for you. I will not speak badly of this person. Now, you could say in this case that she was speaking in generality. She's like saying all turtles are turtles. She's, you know, she's saying all men are this. So she's not speaking directly of you in a negative light in public. Yeah. It's important to be clear and unambiguous with your, de with your deal breakers. But when someone violates a preference, generally the first time I just observe. Now you can do this differently, but I like to observe the first time. I wanna see what the intention was. What were they trying to do, right? Is there a mistake or an error or an omission in my standard procedures? The second time that this happens, however, it's a problem. And I will sit down with them, we will figure out where the problem exists, and we will fix the problem. Now, the problem with this way of fixing the problem, <laughs> somewhat ironically, is that in the past, it involved adding more rules to the contract 1.0 which means that it becomes longer and longer and more and more labyrinthine in nature. And then you have to establish precedence as in which rule comes before which other rules, uh, which is, you know, all of the bullshit that led to the development of contracts 2.0. So that shit doesn't work. Just adding more rules is not the solution, right? The solution is for you to understand at a core level, literally tattoo this on the inside of your fucking eyelids. Just because you have a contract doesn't make them want to do it. Even if they're very enthusiastic when they agree to the contract, you have a contract. That means that they will try their best to do it. Now, if you're a submissive, then you have the right to say no. If you're a slave or you're someone in a consensual non-consent dynamic, then there may be situations when you don't have the right to say no, right? You can indicate your displeasure, but you cannot refuse. However, you don't have to enjoy every single thing because you wanting them to do something does not necessarily always mean that they will want to do it just because you have a contract. So, understand this crucial distinction. People do what they want to do. Do not make the mistake of ascribing a moral judgment to this. 
Do not say you're a bad submissive because you did this. The same way that you wouldn't say to a horse, you're a bad horse because you jumped the fence. It's a horse. It's doing horse things. It's doing them well, right? It's just jumping the wrong fence. So your role as a trainer and her role as the responsible party in this situation, obviously you can, if you're responsible for things, you ask her to help you fix this. It's not just a one-way thing. You know, it's okay to ask your submissive for help. Hopefully, and I really do hope that you have the submissive in your life that is capable of teaching you some things as well as you have taught her some things. That's a wonderful relationship dynamic to have. One of mutual respect and patience and understanding and interdependence. Interdependence is when two completely independent people form a relationship and it's amazing. Clear goals, clear vision, all the stuff I've been talking about, right? What we're building towards, what you're building now, is an interdependent relationship. One where you can have all of these things, all of the juice from a relationship with someone without ever being afraid of them leaving you because you don't need them. You want them. They would be hard to replace, you know, follow the rules for jealousy on more of an understanding for that, but you don't need them to be happy. So, you need some way, and the third one is basically when they make it, when they break a preference. All right, a preference is just a preference. I don't care. It's it's a it's a nice thing for them to live up to, but I'm not going to punish them for it because to do that would be to violate the principles of operant. Sorry, the second one would be when they break a, a preference. I shouldn't have used the word rule earlier. I meant to say preference. So you have your deal breakers, you have your pre your preferences, and then you have the third category is. They're like, they're like tripwire rules. They're designed to be broken, right? For more of an understanding of that, see the podcast episode on Contracts 2.0. But when they break those things, have a remediation strategy in place as well. When they break a tripwire rule, they get a beating, right? They break two in the same night, they get a worse beating. Whatever it is that they're actually trying to use, breaking those tripwire rules to ask for. This is where brattiness, I guess, comes in to some extent. Listen to the podcast on Contracts 2.0, it'll make more sense. So three different categories. One, they break a deal breaker. That's bad, right? Two, now, just to clarify there, they can't break a deal breaker if they didn't actually have it in the contract. So this is not where you rules lawyer someone, submissives. This is where someone trips over something that they weren't aware existed before that happened. You know, like some sort of trauma that they had repressed or some sort of circumstance that they weren't aware of. So then you talk about it with your partner and you think about maybe altering the contract, maybe, or better solution, go and see a qualified therapist and get your shit fixed because you deserve to have a happy life. You deserve to live free from the constraints of your past, you matter. Just, dear Lord Almighty, if there was one thing I could teach people, it would be love yourself as much as you have always loved other people, right? 
I'm not fucking around with this either, right? You deserve to go and get the help that you need. Man, woman, guy, girl, other, whatever. Don't drag your shit around forever. Get it fucking fixed, right? If you trip over a boundary or a landmine or a trauma, go and see a brilliant therapist, not an okay one, but one that's gonna take your money for six sessions and then four more, and then leave you feeling as terrible as you felt afterwards. Go and find whatever works for you, whatever process, whatever technologies, so that you don't have that problem anymore. That's the benchmark for succeeding in therapy, is when you walk out of the room without the problem, right? Not when you feel a little bit better for half an hour, because you deserve to not have those problems anymore, right? A lot of the boundaries that people cross by accident are, I didn't realize this was gonna trigger something, and then boom, all of a sudden now we have to talk about adding 17 more deal breakers. That's a red flag right there. When a girl or a guy, but more likely to be a girl, says, I have this many deal breakers, that's a very bad sign. So you might have a lot of dates at the top of this process. You date those people like a normal person for a minimum of four months. You do all of the kinky stuff that you wanna do with them. But you don't call yourself her dom, she's not your submissive, you don't have roles, you don't have responsibilities, there are no expectations on either of you. Just date them. Ask them interesting questions. Play the we're not really strangers online version because buying the decks is very expensive. You know, connect, bond, learn more about them. Be genuinely interesting yourself, right? Learn how to be interesting and then how to present yourself in an interesting way. Then date them for four to six months. Then follow those processes. Hey, I'm into kink. You're into kink. You can talk about that beforehand. You can meet on FetLife, right? You can meet when she's hung upside down in someone else's suspension harness and sucking your dick and you're like, hi, my name's John. And she's like, hi, my name's Sally. Do you want to go for a coffee sometime, right? You can meet in whatever kinky circumstances to whatever level of intensity that you do. Date them first. Do all the kinky stuff you want to do with them. But don't settle. Don't commit to a proper full-on DS relationship until at least four to six months in. Don't even begin discussing one. Then follow the processes that I've outlined in this, in this audio, right? Definitions first, then meanings, then worked examples. Use the perfect day as a good example, right? Harmonize around a shared vision. Do not compromise the things that really matter to you. Talk about your intentions. Talk about your fears. Have multiple mini scenes together. Have multiple mini contracts together. Right? A mini contract is just a scene that lasts for a couple of days, usually a Friday night through to a Saturday afternoon. If I haven't talked about this anywhere else earlier, somebody out there send me an email and I will put together an episode on that particular concept. Mini contracts, right? Play, laugh, have fun. I'm not gonna tell you to do these things because other people will whinge at you and if that was working, whinge at you to do them. And if that was working, you'd be doing them already. 
I'm telling you, that is the best way. This is the superior way to form a healthy, sustainable, deeply connective DS relationship. All right. Then after six months, design a contract 2.0 together. Right? Come up with a shared vision of your relationship. Talk about your intentions, talk about your fears, talk about, this is kind of when, if not earlier, you would talk about the big three questions that most people that are dating. Do you want kids, your political views, and kind of like a miscellaneous category for anything else that people would end up. But honestly, those are kind of normal dating deal breakers. You get into those before you get into the deal breakers in your contract 2.0. And you design this contract. Then you give it a try for a weekend, right? You just switch it on a Friday afternoon and you switch it off Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, whatever. Try it for three hours first. We're gonna live like this. We're gonna dip our toe in the water. I'm gonna see how it goes. Do this at least five times. Take your time with this, right? Then refine it. Improve it, but don't add more than four to six deal breakers, right? You should be able to recite every word of your contract 2.0 from memory. Preferences are not part of the contract, right? Then outline using the eight questions for designing a scene that I have in the handout in the books, PDFs, and templates folder in the resources folder on the website, thewordsmithspeaks.com. T-H-E-W-O-R-D-S-M-I-T-H dot speaks. Sorry. Let me start that again. <clears throat> the Wordsmith Speaks. I've started spelling these things out because I seem to have a lot of fans that don't speak English as their uh, native language. So T-H-E-W-O-R-D-S-M-I-T-H-S-P-E-A-K-S dot com. If it's easier for you to remember, mindkink.net will also redirect to the same website. Okay? Go there, grab the resources from the resources folder. Right? Use those eight questions to design your relationship. How will it start? How will it end? I mean, what a fucking brilliant concept. Anton Foreman's book, The Heart of Dominance. Brilliant book. I'm not going to tell you to buy a copy, but you should definitely read it. Right? I mean, I'm not going to tell you to do anything. I'm just presenting ideas. But it's an excellent book, in my opinion. So, then, enjoy this. Spend the next six months or so just playing with it, right? I feel like that's a good general overview of the beginning and intermediate stages of relationship design in a DS sense. If I've missed anything, of course, please email me and I'll update this podcast with additions. And I plan on doing a longer, more thorough, more investigative version of it at some point in the very near future. I hope you've enjoyed this. Enjoy the outro. And as always, you can contact me on the website mindkink.net or thewordsmithspeaks.com. I love reading your emails. Honestly, I get some amazing people with some really interesting questions. And even if you don't think your questions are interesting, there's a pretty good chance they are. So that's all for now. I have been your wordsmith. Thank you for listening to the Mind King podcast. I hope that you found it useful 
and that you will implement the things you've learned to bring more joy into your life. You can find more content including the free book, a folder of templates and printable handouts, heaps of audio files, and much more at the website, mindkink.net. Feel free to send me a short email or to get in touch using the details on the contacts page. I always enjoy hearing from people who have benefited from my work.